Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Christine and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Today's program is a, is a partnership between the Leukemia Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And the title of the program today is New Treatments for Childhood Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia, or ALL. And uh, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, and um, today's program um, is... Uh, was funded in part by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have many of you on the call today. There are over 150 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Brazil, Canada, India, the Philippines, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. And we're delighted to have all of you on the program with us today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gabrielle Robbins. And Dr. Robbins is Pediatric Hematology Oncology, Stephen D. Hassenfeld Children's Center for, for Cancer and Blood Disorders, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Robbins will be addressing an overview of, of ALL in children, including current standard of care chemotherapy and new treatment approaches, treatment of recurrent ALL, targeted treatment and stem cell transplantation, managing treatment side effects, and the role of clinical trials in childhood ALL. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed co colleague, Dr. Robbins. Thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you to the uh, Leukemia Research Foundation and to your team at Cancer Care for hosting this conference today. I'm really glad to be able to speak to all of you today. Um, as you said about current therapies and pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or pediatric ALL, and to discuss new and emerging treatments for this disease. So uh, pediatric ALL, as many of you may know, is a cancer of blood cells that affects children of all ages. Typically, they're are about 3,000 cases of pediatric ALL each year in North America, most commonly affecting children during young childhood, but ALL can also develop in a person of any age, including infants, adolescents, young adults, and certainly older adults can get leukemia too. But of course, today we'll only focus on children's leukemia today, which is a, really a distinct disease from adult leukemia. While the number of pediatric patients who develop ALL pale in comparison to the number of adult cancer patients, thankfully, that's still, of course, far too many children who are afflicted with this cancer. So doctors and researchers have been working for, for many decades to learn how to treat this important disease, and with lots of success, thankfully. Um, 
for the purposes of my talk, it's important to know that there are two main categories of pediatric ALL, depending on the type of blood cell from which they're derived, B cell or T cell. And most of what I'll discuss today applies to both types, um, and I'll try and differentiate when it's appropriate. So let me share with you a little bit about the treatment that we use now and how that treatment was developed. The, the backbone of therapy today for pediatric ALL is chemotherapy. Conventional chemotherapy medicines are medicines that work by interfering with a cancer cell's ability to replicate and multiply. And it does this by injuring a cancer cell's DNA and, and the proteins that are involved in cell division. And because cancer, like leukemia, at its root is a problem caused by unhealthy cells that are replicating and multiplying, chemotherapy medicines are really effective at destroying cancer cells, which is our goal. Many of the conventional chemotherapy medicines that we use today for pediatric ALL, with names like vincristine, methotrexate, titerabine, and others, are actually medicines that are, that are decades old, actually, and were discovered back in the 60s and 70s when the first chemotherapy agents were first being discovered. But even though many of the current medicines we use today are old medicines, that doesn't mean that we haven't made any progress in therapy using these medicines since those days. On the contrary, actually, doctors and researchers have made extraordinary progress in pediatric ALL by optimizing how we use these medications. And over the past five or six decades, doctors have been studying how to give these medications in combination with one another to optimize how they work together. And they've learned the best dosing schedules. We've learned how to maximize how much medication we're able to safely give by improving the supportive care that we give along with chemotherapy. So that today when a child is newly diagnosed with ALL, there are very well established schedules and regimens of chemotherapy that we know work best for each particular child. I want to mention a few key concepts for how we deliver chemotherapy for newly diagnosed ALL that's unique to pediatric leukemia compared to other types of cancers. First, in pediatric ALL, chemotherapy starts with about six to eight months using intensive or strong doses of these chemotherapy medications, and the medicines are given in cycles that are usually about a month long. Now, in most other cancers, after this intensive stretch of chemotherapy, the medicine is done, and hopefully the cancer has gone away. In pediatric leukemia, though, even though the leukemia may be gone, we continue to give low-level chemotherapy for about two years after that, and we call this maintenance chemotherapy. And we learned that giving this low-level chemotherapy helps keep the cancer from ever coming back. It's kind of like, I think of it kind of like wearing a retainer after getting your braces off. Um, now, thankfully, during this low-level maintenance chemotherapy, kids are usually able to go back to school and do most of the things that they normally do so that even though chemotherapy lasts for a long time, their lives at this point in the therapy hopefully look much more like their normal day-to-day -day lives. The second concept that I want to mention is that in addition to the chemotherapy we give by mouth and through the bloodstream through a line, um, we also have to give chemotherapy to a special space in the body, and that's the space that surrounds the brain and spinal cord. When doctors learned that giving this chemotherapy into this special space is possible, we learned that th doing this dramatically improved our success in treating leukemia by preventing the leukemia from invading that space and coming back.
So by learning how to best use conventional chemotherapy, doctors have made a lot of progress in our ability to successfully treat leukemia in children, thankfully. But of course, we also know very well that there's a lot of progress that still needs to be made for, for two main reasons. First, because there are still some cases where these conventional chemotherapy medications aren't quite enough to get rid of the leukemia. There are still some cases where the leukemia might come back despite these medications, and I'll talk about those cases in a few minutes. And second, we know that these medications cause important side effects, and so we're still trying to find therapies that will maintain our success treating leukemia while also avoiding some of the side effects that these medications can cause. So let me talk for just a few minutes about some of the important side effects that these chemotherapy medications can cause and some of the supportive care that we provide to be able to give chemotherapy as safely as possible. First and foremost, we know that chemotherapy can weaken a child's immune system and put them at risk for infections that could sometimes become serious. Um, thankfully, we've learned how to prevent infections from starting in the first place in many cases using preventative antibiotics and other medications that we give throughout chemotherapy. And we've also learned how to treat infections really well and aggressively with really effective antibiotics and other antimicrobial medications if infection does occur. And it's no coincidence that as we've become better at treating infections, our ability to successfully use chemotherapy to treat and cure leukemia has also increased because those two things really go hand in hand. Um, in addition to infections, we know that chemotherapy can cause many other side effects, um, such as nausea and vomiting, changes in appetite, fatigue, anemia, temporary hair loss, the list go it goes on. Um, thankfully, we have many medical and non-medical approaches to minimizing or reducing these side effects during therapy. But I just, just to say that receiving chemotherapy involves a lot of supportive care too. Sometimes supportive care means medicine, sometimes it means blood transfusions, sometimes it means physical therapy to maintain activity levels, and sometimes it means psychosocial therapy. Treating leukemia to say, to, to say all this is not just about chemotherapy. It really requires a holistic approach to take care of your whole child, right? Body and mind. And that takes a lot of people, not just one doctor, but a whole team of care providers. <clears throat> Let me turn for a little bit to um, what therapies we use when conventional chemotherapy isn't working well enough. Most of the time, chemotherapy alone is enough to destroy and permanently eliminate a child's leukemia. And these children are cured, and we're very proud of our success doing that with chemotherapy alone. But in certain cases, chemotherapy alone doesn't work well enough. Sometimes this means that the leukemia didn't go away in the first place, and sometimes it means that the leukemia went away but then came back at when therapy ended. And when chemotherapy isn't sufficient, there are three other main types of therapies that we use to help eradicate this resistant leukemia. And I'll spend the remainder of my time talking about these approaches, some of which are quite new and all of which hold a lot of promise. <clears throat> the first therapy I, I want to mention is bone marrow transplant. Most children who have leukemia that has returned despite chemotherapy have traditionally needed a bone marrow transplant to achieve cure. Now, in bone marrow transplant, what we're doing is we're actually trying to eliminate a patient's healthy blood system, which is the source of the leukemia cells, and replace it with a donor's healthy blood system. And to do this, 
doctors give either chemotherapy or radiation in doses that are high enough to not only eliminate leukemia cells, but also to remove the normal healthy blood cells too. And then we infuse our patient with a donor's healthy blood stem cells. And this donor, they may be a family member, or sometimes the donor can be a complete stranger. But what's important is that to achieve a successful transplant, the donor's cells should closely match or resemble the patient's own cells. And if they don't match closely, it's possible that our patient's body might reject the new cells or that the new cells could cause injury. So for many years, the ability to perform a successful transplant was limited by the ability to find a donor that matched closely. But in the past 10 or 15 years, there have been major new advances in the field of transplant medicine so that transplant doctors can now successfully use donor cells that sometimes only partially match the patient. And those donor cells will often still work. And so we're really hopeful that transplants, which are already successful in a lot of patients, will become even more successful in these cases. I'm not going to go into more details about transplant because the medicine of transplants could be a whole talk unto itself, but let me talk instead about two other very promising types of therapy. The other two therapies that we've started to use when conventional chemotherapy isn't enough are two therapies that are very new and have only started to be used for children in the past 10 or 15 years. And these two new therapy categories are targeted therapy and immunotherapy. Targeted therapy is are medications that have been created by scientists in a lab to target something unique about leukemia cells. So it turns out that leukemia cells have certain features and markers that they express that are not expressed on most, most other cells in the body. And once scientists identified these unique features of leukemia cells, they were able to develop medications that will only attach to leukemia cells that have these unique markers. I'll give you two examples of these medications that are currently being used, although there are certainly more than two. One medication that's currently being used is called blenitumumab, or I say blina for short, and another medication is called inotuzumab, or ino for short. And these medications, for the most part, can only attach to the leukemia cells that express these targets, kind of like a key that can only fit a certain lock. That, that's in contrast to the conventional chemotherapy medications that I was talking about before, where if we gave really much higher doses of conventional chemotherapy medicines that we were talking about earlier, more and more, those medicines would start to injure healthy cells too. So it limits our ability, our maximum dose of those medications um, in order to be able to give those medicines safely. But the targeted therapies like Blina and Ino zoom in on the leukemia cells and destroy them effectively. And when these medications were studied in adults and in children with recurrent BALL, which is leukemia meaning that, that is sometimes resistant to conventional chemotherapy, it turns out that these medications were really good at eliminating the leukemia cells. So now, for certain subsets of children with recurrent BALL that express these targeted markers, we give these novel medications as part of their therapy to help reduce the disease burden so that these patients can then go and get a successful stem cell transplant. There are other examples of targeted therapies that I won't describe right now, but just to say that there are a growing number of new drugs that can target certain genetic mutations and other lesions that may be expressed in certain subsets of children with ALL. 
Um, these medications, blenitumumab and inotuzumab, have actually shown so much promise helping eliminate leukemia cells in children with recurrent disease that doctors and researchers are now asking the question, should we start to use these medications for every patient who presents with newly diagnosed disease? So there are now major new clinical trials, large clinical trials, comparing children who receive conventional chemotherapy alone with children who receive conventional chemotherapy combined with these new targeted therapies. And we're really hopeful that in the coming years that these studies will show that the new targeted therapies continue to improve our success. And ultimately, we may even in the future be able to use more targeted therapies and reduce the amount of conventional chemotherapy that we need to use, thereby reducing all the side effects that come with those therapies. The, the final therapy that I'd like to mention is also quite new, and it's a type of therapy that harnesses someone's own immune system to fight the leukemia in their body. This therapy is called CAR T-cell therapy, and in this type of therapy, some of a child's healthy T-cells, which are part of his or her immune system, are removed from their body through a line, brought to a lab where these cells are re-engineered so and trained so that they can identify and target specific features of leukemia cells, kind of like the targeted therapies we just described, except instead of medicines, these are the body's own cells that are being trained to attack the leukemia. Then these re-engineered T cells are infused back into a child, where they now attack the body's leukemia cells using their own immune system and these cells that have been engineered to recognize leukemia cells. It almost sounds, it's, it's not so advanced that a few years ago, many doctors would have called this science fiction, but it is a real therapy that has actually shown to be effective in many cases where other types of therapy haven't worked. So again, this just gives us another tool when a child has ALL that is not responding to other therapies well enough. So I'll pause there, and just to summarize what I've mentioned, a, conventional chemotherapy is the backbone of successful therapy for treating childhood ALL. Therapy has many side effects that we work hard to reduce. And in the cases where childhood ALL isn't eradicated by chemotherapy alone, we have many new approaches that include stem cell transplant, targeted therapies, and new therapies that harness the power of the immune system to eradicate leukemia. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Robbins. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. Um, lots of information, a really stellar presentation, um, and really sets the stage for today's program. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the sure. Q&A. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sure. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Muriel, Dr. Anna Muriel. And Dr. Muriel is Chief Division of Pediatric Psychosocial Oncology, Institute Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Muriel will address social and emotional issues during and after ALL treatment, late and long-term effects of ALL treatment in children, key questions to ask the doctor and healthcare team in making treatment decisions and scheduling follow-up exams, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Murrell. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. And um, thank you, uh, Dr. Robbins, for laying out the biology and the medical treatment for pediatric leukemia. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the social and emotional issues during treatment and afterwards. Because as we know that despite the excellent treatment and the survival rates, which are amazing, um, the treatment will affect a child and their family for two or three years of their life. And between the hospitalizations and the outpatient treatments, the side effects and the uh, work to, to provide supportive care, there's a lot of changes that the family has to go through. Um, the child themselves has to deal with certainly understanding what is going on, what is happening to them, as well as the various um, interventions and uh, treatments that sometimes can have, you know, there could be procedural pain or there can be pain caused by the illness, side effects to treatment, as well as all the disruption to their usual activities, to school, and to their peer relationships. And then, of course, we know that the child is not the only person affected. The whole family is affected, and that parental stress is also a huge uh, aspect of the care, and that um, parents can be stressed by the finances involved with getting treatment, their own em employment issues. Certainly, there are strains on the marriage, and um, parents' personal issues can um, be impacted by their child's illness as well. And then the extended family, certainly the siblings, can be impacted as well. The, ch the siblings have to manage disruptions to their own routine. Sometimes they have um, other caregivers that they have to uh, learn to work with. And then they also need uh, communication and an understanding of what's going on with their sibling and um, how the illness is affecting their family. And not to mention all the extended family members that may also be impacted by needing to uh, support the family going through this um, and the larger community and the social structure uh, that a child and their family find themselves in. So during treatment, as I said, there's this impact on the whole family. And we know that parental distress, which of course is natural when your child is diagnosed, um, needs to be managed because it also does affect the child's distress. And we know if we can provide support to a parent, they are in a better position to provide support to their child. And that this sometimes involves communication with uh, the, the family's entire support system, key adults in the child's life, the school system, the daycare center, other kinds of folks who take care of this child will need to be informed about what's going on and how the child's illness may impact their ability to participate in those activities. Families often wonder about the trauma that this um, produces for children and families. And we know that there are um, stresses and strains that can be traumatic for the child going through cancer, as well as for the parents and the siblings and the family members. But we often find that there can be um, episodes of, of this stress, but that families can be really resilient. And it doesn't mean that every child or every family that goes through leukemia treatment will have for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that people sometimes think about for long-term effects. Um, we do know, though, that, that motions and the behavior of a child can absolutely be impacted by the child's treatment. Some of the treatments that Dr. Robbins mentioned um, and the disruption in the hospitalizations and or the, just the chemotherapy and the medication can cause um, various physical side effects that have emotional side effects. So, for example, um, a child having insomnia or having nausea or changes in appetite or episodes of pain will absolutely impact the child's behavior in terms of their anxiety, their anxiety about procedures. They may be more irritable. They may actually get sad or depressed. 
And the um, response that children have to this will be mostly dependent on the pre-existing temperament of the child and the other kind of circumstances of the child's um, life in terms of what was going on in the family before the child's leukemia diagnosis. And we also know that um, the child's developmental stage will impact how they respond. A very young child has different needs than an older child or a teenager and in terms of how they will respond to the uh, treatment and the side effects. And the child's temperament, like their actual sort of pre-existing personality, will also impact how children will um, respond to their leukemia treatment. You know, most parents can tell you that they have some kids who are more worried than other kids or who are um, more exuberant and enthusiastic and um, active than other kids. And so that child's pre-existing temperament may um, impact how they respond emotionally to the leukemia treatment. And we also feel that communication is so important with young, even the youngest children, that understanding what is happening what the name is of their disease. We often recommend really using the term leukemia um, so that when the child is overhearing these words, they are not confused by them and they have an opportunity to ask questions and to get developmentally appropriate responses to their questions so that they understand what's going on and what they can expect. And this kind of helps some of the emotional adjustment to the treatment. The other thing that is a big component of leukemia treatment that does have significant behavioral and emotional side effects is the uh, course of steroids. So steroids are a part, an essential part of most leukemia treatment, and that this is they're usually given in an episodic way. And when children are on steroids, if you've heard about roid rage, um, sometimes kids can exhibit that. And so being aware of the side effects of steroids, which are temporary and sort of based on the time that the child is on steroids, can include some of these issues like difficulty sleeping, increased appetite, mood swings, irritability, um, out of control behavior or aggression. And you wanna make sure you talk to your oncology team about these behaviors so that you can address them um, because they are a natural part sometimes of having steroids in the child's system and it can depend on the dose or the time frame of the steroids. And there are a range of services available to families during their treatment, and you want to think with your oncology team about what's available. Some things are available like cancer care, you know, to everybody online, um, but there are also maybe groups for parents, teens, or siblings that are available at your cancer center. And then most cancer centers have pediatric social workers who work with families on the emotional adjustment and also may sometimes be able to help with concrete resources or finances. And then for children who may have either pre-existing um, psychological concerns or have very strong responses to their treatment, there can be the involvement of psychology or psychiatry to help support the children and their families in, during the treatment. And then I'm going to turn to the late effects um, and how even after the child is finished with these couple of years of leukemia treatment, one can imagine that there is some impact. Um, initially after the treatment, there is a, a period of time where it, the child will take time to, to, to return back to their normal energy and functioning level. And it takes adjustment to get back to school, to their peers, and to the, a different kind of family dynamic. Um, always, for most uh, older children and parents, there's a concern about relapse. Um, as Dr. Robbins you know, discussed, there, there is a chance of relapse. Um, but uh, the, that concern can sometimes actually be more of an issue, so we need to address those worries. 
um, and that there can sometimes be a period of letdown or sort of depression sometimes after the treatment um, ends because people have been so focused on getting through the treatment and now that it's done, there's kind of this letdown and a, a sense of the emotions settling in and that can be kind of um, sad or hard for families um, as they're coming off treatment as well. However, most um, children and families are quite resilient and that um, children will move on in their developmental trajectory and if they can get back to their usual activities, they really can be quite resilient. And they do have ongoing medical follow-up, which can sometimes make kids feel different, um, and yet most kids can kind of take those in stride. There may be some children or families that have some more risk factors for long-term uh, mental health issues. And so you would want to check in with your oncology team for referrals or your primary care doctor about referrals to community mental health services so that the child and the family can recover to the best of their ability. The other thing that sometimes happens um, as a late effect of leukemia treatment is because, as Dr. Robbins mentioned, some of the chemotherapy is delivered actually directly to the, the brain space or the, the fluid around the brain and the, and the spinal cord, and that can affect um, some of a child's um, learning and um, neurocognitive uh, development. And so um, these tend to be in the realm of things like attention or processing speed or something called executive functioning, sort of the ability to shift and, and focus one's attention in various ways, as well as the, the speed at which one learns. And so if your child after treatment is having some changes in their learning or their educational plan, um, one would want to get some, a, a deep dive into the testing to understand what's going on with the child's learning. And one school can begin this testing, and then sometimes you need a referral to a special kind of uh, psychologist, a neuropsychologist, who can do a, a whole battery of tests to really understand what's going on with that child's learning. And then um, there can be some special education services, or sometimes um, if there's a pronounced uh, attention deficit, there can be um, other treatments for ADD or uh, medications for ADD that can be helpful to children um, in getting back on their learning trajectory. So just to um, add a few things about how you can think about um, interacting with your oncology team as you're making treatment decisions and scheduling appointments and things, you might want to just, you know, most of the time, as Dr. Robbins explained, there will be um, a way of thinking about whether the child's uh, treatment needs to be inpatient or outpatient, but you might need to ask specifically or to ask about which treatments are through the vein intravenously or which ones are by mouth, um, how often they're going to be getting them, how often the appointments may be, so that you can plan for things like the child care of another child or time off of work. And then thinking about the treatments and sort of what the recovery will be for your child in terms of the side effects, um, what kinds of supportive care um, support things are available to your child so that you can make a plan for after each infusion what's the kind of recovery time your child may need. And then, I'll, of course, it's important to understand from your team when to call the clinic, what are the kinds of questions that you should bring or call immediately about or think about bringing your child to the emergency room for for their particular um, medical issues. And then sometimes families want to know up front more about the late effects and what kind of follow-up they're going to need over time. 
The other thing is just in the context of our current climate and how many uh, telehealth visits are happening, I think it's important for families to think about what kind of um, help they need to make sure they're prepared for those visits, what kind of technology they need, whether it's a phone, a computer, an iPad, how they get the Zoom link, how do they click on it, um, and then to always provide a backup phone number or to receive a backup phone number so if there's a problem with getting connected, you know who to call and you can get um, plugged into your doctor's visit. And then I think thinking about things like the privacy and where you're going to be to take this phone call and have this conversation with the medical team. And then also something very basic like figuring out whether the medical team needs to see your child on that telehealth visit or if it's actually just a parent visit because there may be different visits that um, your team will be doing with you and, and you want to know in advance whether your child needs to be there or cared for elsewhere or join you. And then you want to provide, uh, you want to create a list of questions for yourself so that you know, you can do this in the days leading up to the meeting so that you are prepared because it's easy to forget the kinds of things that you um, may want to ask or um, when you have your team in front of you. And then most of our um, systems now have a system called open notes, which means that um, in the electronic medical record, your doctor or nurse practitioner, your oncology team will enter um, a summary of the visit and some notes from their visit, and that you, through your patient portal, may have access directly to those notes or to um, a treatment summary or a summary of the visit. And that just helps remind you what was discussed and especially the kind of um, action steps or follow-up that you need to do um, with your child. So there are a lot of new things that you have to learn as a parent, and you're trying to deal with all the emotional stresses and the financial stresses and, the, and then the healthcare system and how we um, are going to have uh, patients and parents interact with your system. So um, you really want to be thinking about asking some of the specific questions to your oncology team um, and being prepared so that you um, don't forget them as you, as you go forward with your meetings. So I'll pause there and um, turn it back to our moderator to take uh, the next steps of our call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Murrell. That was really outstanding. Uh, just again, another stellar presentation and um, a lot of wonderful um, social, emotional issues that um, come up during this treatment and how to deal with them. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Carrie Callis, and she is Director of Programs Leukemia Research Foundation. And Ms. Callis is our partner organization on today's program, and she'll be addressing the Leukemia Research Foundation's free programs and services. And I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callis. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for that introduction. Um, I want to thank Cancer Care for hosting this important program and for inviting the Leukemia Research Foundation to partner. Um, I thought I would just provide a very brief overview about the Leukemia Research Foundation and our patient and family supports that we provide. The Leukemia Research Foundation's mission is to cure leukemia by funding innovative research and to support patients and families. Um, the foundation has raised over $83 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research. Over the years, um, many of our funded research projects have focused on childhood ALL. Um, in addition to our research investments, the foundation supports patients and families by 
providing educational programs like the one you're on with um, top hematology and oncology experts. Um, just to highlight two conferences we have throughout the year, one is our annual New and Emerging Treatments Conference, which we hold in the fall, and the other is our Leukemia Q&A, which is an open forum um, for patients to ask questions of experts, um, and that is held in the winter, usually in January or February. Um, one of the sessions this year, actually, um, in our upcoming virtual new and emerging treatments conference will cover childhood ALL, and it will be held October 26th from 7 to 8 p.m. with Dr. Jen McNear from University of Cincinnati. Um, in addition to education programs, um, we offer peer support programs, including a leukemia online support community and a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Emmerman Angels. Um, and for financial assistance, which we know is a great need, um, we offer a need-based patient grant program eligible to, available to eligible patients in Illinois, as well as information about other financial assistance resources on our website. So I encourage you to visit our website, leukemiarf.org, to view all of our disease and informational content, and to sign up for our email list so that you can be informed of our upcoming programs, including our upcoming Childhood ALL program in October. We also send information about research advances and other relevant topics. Um, so thank you for this opportunity to share about the foundation, and I will turn it back over to Dr. Mesner from Cancer Care. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Callis. That was really outstanding and wonderful resource for our participants to take advantage of and to stay tuned for that October program, which we'll be hearing more about. So thank you so much. Um, and our next presenter is Ms. Lauren Chatelian. And Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker, and she is Director of Advocacy at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services for children and families and providing information about our Hope Line and our website as well. Thank and you, it's Dr. my pleasure Nelson. now to turn this program to, to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Chatelian. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Cancer Care's comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, virtual community programs such as coping circle workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. There are many aspects of a childhood cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services for families, as Dr. Muriel mentioned. This could include helping children and families adjust to a cancer diagnosis and the demands of treatment effectively, while also developing healthy coping skills. Depending on a child's age, there may be specific areas of focus, such as the impact of the diagnosis on school, body image, self-esteem, and relationships. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings and concerns. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming, Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety for families. 
Families impacted by a pediatric ALL diagnosis may choose to supplement existing social networks by connecting with others going through a similar experience, such as within a support group. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Cancer Care offers national online support groups for caregivers and loved ones, which take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by oncology social workers. Caregivers and loved ones can also connect through Cancer Care's Coping Circles, which are national virtual workshops also led by oncology social workers addressing psychosocial and psychoeducational concerns. Registration for these programs can be found on Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org. Cancer Care also has a children's program, Cancer Care for Kids, which provides support to children and adolescents affected by cancer. There is a dedicated page on our website outlining all services related to the Cancer Care for Kids program, including reading material, podcasts, resources, and practical programs. Publications include navigating and approaching conversations with children about cancer, such as the fact sheet supporting a child with cancer, and tips for taking care of yourself as you care for your child on caring advice for caregivers, caring for yourself when your child has cancer fact sheet. Families in impacted by cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Cancer Care's case management services are a short-term strength-based approach to case management where the case manager will work with the parent or guardian in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more about the support services available, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. We are here to offer you support and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this program. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. I'll now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Lauren. Uh, Mr. Talion, that was outstanding, really stellar and uh, wonderful presentation. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And now we have time for your questions. I'm going to ask um, Christine to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Christine, and bring all of our speakers on board as well. <laughs> Thanks. Today's question and answer session will be held via the web interface. If you would like to ask a question, you may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. And this is the first question. Um, for Dr. Robbins, can treatment affect my child's fertility? If so, what are, are my options? to help preserve my child's fertility? That's a really great question and something we think about a lot, um, starting from day one when we think about um, chemotherapy. Certain chemotherapy medicines um, and radiation, if that's a part of treatment, which is rarely a part of leukemia treatment, but um, uh, and transplant medicine can also, can all affect um, in theory, fertility. Now, we're really thankful that the chemotherapy regimens that we use as first-line therapy for leukemia typically are not used in doses that create a high risk for infertility. In fact, it's quite low risk, and I, I think it's exceptionally uncommon at the doses of chemotherapy that we give as first-line therapy that um, our patients will have 
um, to worry about infertility. That being said, it is an issue for a small subset of patients, those patients that don't respond to initial chemotherapy and need stronger or further therapy. Sometimes, depending on the therapy they're going to get in the future for their recurrent disease, particularly if they're going to undergo transplant, sometimes their fertility can be affected by the medicines we use. And of course, we don't always know to, how to predict which children, even though it's a small subset, will end up needing that extra therapy. So. Um, there are actually guidelines and foundations and, and organizations that think about this issue quite a bit. And so for our patients at the beginning of therapy, um, even if we don't think that there's a risk to their fertility yet from the therapy they're going to get, sometimes institutions will offer um, fertility preservation methods if it's feasible at the beginning of therapy. For example, um, for males that are pubertal, for, for males that produce sperm, sperm banking is an option. Um, it's a little bit trickier in patients who are not yet pubertal, of course, because um, there, are, there are methods to extract um, material that will become sperm or eggs, but that's a little bit involved. Thankfully, for most patients, even if they're not offered, or even if that's not suggested in frontline therapy, it doesn't really ever become an issue. And there are still times down the road when if we decide that they need extra therapy that may affect their fertility, that there are methods to help preserve fertility. Um, I, I hope that at least begins to address the question. There are so many scenarios that um, I, I hope uh, the, the medical team that you work with will address the particular scenario that you're thinking about. Excellent. Thank you. And it gives a lot of information to our participants to go back to the treating healthcare team with. Thank you so much. And the next question is um, for Dr. Um, um, so, so for Dr. Muriel, I'm having a hard time explaining AL to my friends, um, the parent. They don't seem to understand what I'm going through. Do you know, um, do you have any resources, Dr. Muriel, or support groups that you would recommend? Um, hi, so I think that's a really important question. Of course, ev um, every family needs support from their community and sometimes that's harder to get. I'm not sure if the question is about support groups for the parents going through experience and then I think you know as you heard from some of our cancer care colleagues there are um, uh, support groups available through them and so I think you may you might ask both your local cancer center where your child is being treated but also um, ask uh, look look online for some of these um, online support groups and there's some of them may need to be regional but some of them are national but I think the other question that you're addressing is how do you explain some of these issues to your friends whose children are not going through it and I think some of the resources actually on on the websites are helpful because it helps people get a window into that I think the other thing is um, you know as your child goes through the various phases of treatment sometimes uh, being able to explain that in very concrete ways to your to your friends and your community are helpful but also I think sometimes designating a person, you know, a, a close family member or a close friend who can be that liaison with your larger community of friends so that 
the parent themselves are not always fielding questions, calls, how can we help? Got other people who are organizing the social media or um, thinking about how to communicate out the needs of the family to the larger community so they can contribute, but that you don't have to be fielding all those calls all the time. Excellent. And Lauren, do you want, Mr. Shelley, do you want to add to that as well? Sure, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, you know, kind of reaching out for those supports available, having a designated um, you know, person, there are some wonderful, wonderful resources where um, there's some care coordination available as well. Um, I would definitely say, you know, exploring some of the online support groups as well as some of the reading material that, you know, our, our organizations offer, um, kind of lay out some of that language to be able to discuss with others. And, and it's important to, you know, share what you would like to share, you know, whatever that may be um, and whatever, you know, you're comfortable sharing as a parent and, um, you know, really leaning on those supports available to you. Excellent. And let's be the last question um, for Dr. Robbins. Um, my mm -hmm. daughter always enjoyed playing sports. Will she have to change her lifestyle because of ALL? Great question. So I kind of break up the treatment of ALL into a few different phases. Um, as I mentioned, chemotherapy is given in cycles, um, and the first several months are uh, sometimes intensive um, and can change the way your child's feel, feeling. Um, so for those first several months of therapy, there will be times when we expect that um, your child will not feel like his or herself. Um, and there are also, for much of that time, we're also um, we're also being careful about preventing infection and um, not being in crowds. So the short answer is that yes, at least initially, your child's lifestyle and activities they do may have to change while they're going through intensive chemotherapy. Once they get to that second phase of low-level treatment called maintenance chemotherapy several months in, that time period in a child's life will can look very, very close to what um, their typical lives looked like, meaning they can go to school, they can do activities and sports, and for the most part, they're going to be able to feel a lot like themselves and do the things they want to do. And certainly after therapy ends, they I expect that most children should be able to go back to do all of the things that they always loved to do. So it's really those first few months that can be difficult and a difficult adjustment because it's not always the case that you're able to um, play sports or go in person to school or so those those few months can really look quite different in your typical life but um, thankfully most children are able to get, to get back to it. Dr. Robbins, it's just one late breaking question. Um, there isn't sure. a specialized children's cancer hospital in my area. Can my child be seen at our local hospital or do we have to look for a specialized Great question. That's a wonderful hospital. question. Yeah. So thankfully um, Unlike with adult cancers, pediatric cancers are exclusively treated in at, at hospital centers, um, meaning there are no private clinics or for-profit organizations that could 
treat pediatric cancer. It's always, so that means that you're always going to, if you go to a hospital that treats pediatric leukemia, they are going to have a certain amount of resources to treat leukemia appropriately. And so I, and the other thing that's important to know is that many, many, I'd say most of, or virtually all of the hospitals that treat pediatric leukemia work together in organized consortiums and groups so that this, the care that's provided at a local hospital near you for pediatric leukemia, where the treatment is well established and well understood, is going to look very similar no matter where you go. So I would feel confident that if you go to a local hospital that, it, that has a pediatric oncology department, that they will know with confidence how to treat um, pediatric leukemia, and it will look almost, if not identical, to any other hospital that you would go to. So it is completely appropriate to stay in your area. In fact, it's important, I think, because you have your home life to take care of too, um, to be able to go to the local hospital near you, and you should feel confident that they will indeed be able to take care of this. Yes. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. Um, you've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. And I want to acknowledge the fact that there are so many more questions in Q&A that we've done. We haven't done this program for a while, but I have to say the questions have been, we have so many more questions in Q, first of all. So I want to address the, all of you about that. Um, and so, um, uh, first of all, for those of you who asked a question, um, and for those um, the, and for those of you who have a question yet to ask, um, I want you to know that um, we'd like you to take uh, take your questions back um, to your treating healthcare team because they, of course, um, they know you, of course, um, the best, and they can address your question. So again, even if you asked a question today, I want you to take the information you learned and all the information you learned from today's program back to your treating healthcare team with the knowledge you've learned today, with the questions you might have, the questions you might have asked, um, and please use your healthcare team. And remember, your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines on that team that can help you, whether it be about the treatment of your child with ALL, whether it be about um, talking to an oncology nurse or oncology social worker or a financial specialist on the team or a patient navigator. There are lots of people on that team that can help you with your questions and concerns. And of course, we have, um, we will um, be sending you a survey monkey evaluation of this uh, program. Um, you'll be getting that um, uh, you know, um, the next day or so. And in that SurveyMonkey evaluation, there will be an evaluation of the program, which we always like you to complete. But there will also be all sorts of resources, including Leukemia Research Foundation, which is a terrific resource for all of you to go to as well, a recognized um, organization that has lots of resources for you. So most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with um, with ALL, in, your ch in childhood ALL. I want you to know that you now have part of a community of support of both Leukemia Research Foundation, Cancer Care, and many other organizations that are there um, that can provide um, help to you. 
And again, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.